and welcome to The Current Thing with me, Nick Dixon, where we talk about politics, the culture war, and anything else that comes up. And we have another cracking guest, comedian, writer, crypto expert, super funny, super smart, and he has one of the best substacks in all the land. It's your friend and mine, Mr. Dominic Frisbee. Thanks for doing the show, mate. Thank you very much for having me, Nick. I hope you're well. I'm very well. How are you? You look good. Have you just got back from Miami? I've just gone back from Miami. I was just at a Bitcoin conference out there and uh, I had a great time. I got to, I had dinner at Michael Saylor's house. Do you know who Michael Saylor is? No, but I'm, I can tell it's impressive. Yeah, he's like the sort of number one kind of Bitcoin guru. And uh, he just had this beautiful house in, in Miami Beach. So I had dinner there with him and Robert Kennedy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which isn't bad. And Robert Kennedy made all these announcements about, um, you know, pro-crypto legislation, pro-Bitcoin legislation. He was talking about um, if he wins, I think he was even talking about taxes becoming payable in Bitcoin. In other words, making it legal tender. And he was going on and on about the relationship between fiat money and war, which is something that I've only ever heard Ron Paul talk about in terms of American politicians. And so I just thought I was listening to another Ron Paul and not to get my hopes up in case, um, in case... You know, because there's no way the military industrial complex will allow him to be uh, elected and he's too much of a conspiracy theorist and all that kind of thing. But talking to a few people there, they said, no, it's commonly recognized in the Democrat Party that he will he can beat Trump, whereas Biden v. Trump is a draw. And so the, the, the Republicans don't want him and the Democrats do want him. And this is how perverse American politics or politics generally is, is that the things he stands for are pretty Republican things, you know sound money, uh, less war, that kind of thing. And so you, in a way, you would think that Republicans would want him, but they don't. He'll definitely win the Libertarian vote if he, if he manages to stand. Wow, yeah, very interesting. I asked him and I said, he thinks he's going to win. I mean, he's not going to say anything else because he's a salesman, he's selling himself, but he's, he was pretty sure he's going to win and they'll find a way to get rid of Biden and let him stand. He's got that powerful family name, that's for sure. I was going to say, he's got the brand. Did you hear that rumour at one point that he could be Trump's VP? I mean, was that just sort of crazy talk? The problem with Trump is I think he's a, like, he's a personality politician. You, don't, he's, uh, you, you wonder kind of, his policies aren't, he doesn't come from a sort of political philosophy. He's not, his policies aren't that clear. And, you know, for example, when he, when he was going to stand down, I was really hoping he'd give Ed, Ed, Edward Snowden a, a pardon and he'd give um, Assange. Assange a pardon. And he didn't. And and I thought that was a real opportunity missed. But if he was a really principled kind of libertarian guy and the libertarians like him because he winds up all the right people and he is unpredictable. So I'm pretty sure, for example, Putin wouldn't have, wouldn't have invaded Ukraine if, if Trump was in power. But nevertheless, he's not like. Uh, you know, he, he, he's, he likes low interest rates. He likes easy money. He likes economic booms. They're this, even if they're crack up fake booms. So. You know, he's a he's a personality politician in my view, rather than a sort of, you know, stands for a particular philosophy. I think his philosophy is Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. But he 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 has annoyed some libertarians because they see him as sort of corporatist. Because libertarians can be very, so. Would you consider yourself just quickly an, a libertarian? Is that fair to say? Oh, hardcore, hardcore libertarian. Okay, because there's yeah. different types. There's the minic. What's the minicist one? There's the there's different subsets. That I semi-understand and forgotten. There, there are should, definitely should have a minicist is somebody who believes in minimum state, and okay. but I would go as far as to call myself an anarchist, uh, which is somebody who believes in no state. My first book was called Life After the State, um, and there's a new thing I don't know if you've heard of them called anarcho-capitalists. So I that have. would be anarchists and capitalists shortened to ANCAP. And so one of my songs is called Show Me the Way to Ancapistan. <laughs> <laughs> That's so on brand. All right. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, because I was going to ask you one question I was thinking about asking and, and uh, young Rory who works on our clips and sometimes appears on the show also wanted to ask, but I'm also I have to caveat it in case I seem dumb, which is I wanted to ask what would a libertarian Britain or a libertarian state look like? But I wanted to caveat it that I understand that when Michael Malice has asked this question about anarchism, he always says it's not a place, it's a relationship between people. So, but I'm going to ask the question anyway, and you can tell me if it's stupid. So what would it, your libertarian state look like? Well, one of the, one of the catchphrases of, of hardcore libertarians, they, you know, they're, they're big believers in free movement. 
And I wrote the Libertarian National Anthem, which no doubt you play every night before you, as you switch <laughs> off your computer. I pledge allegiance <laughs> to it. <laughs> but one of, the, um, one of the things I say in the National Anthem is uh, um, free speech, free movement, free minds and free choice. And libertarians always argue for free movement, but they also argue for no welfare state. And so, and you can't have free, mo free movement and a welfare state. That the two are incompatible, but uh, you can have free movement and no welfare state because then the incentive to move isn't quite the same, and then it's it's it becomes the responsibility of local people to manage who comes in and out of their area because this property is privately owned rather than state owned. But what would a libertarian Britain look like? Um, the closest analogy I can think of. And there are loads of flaws in this argument. So if anyone really righteous is listening to this, but I was, w w when I did my um, Dominic Frisbee financial game show, one of the rounds in, in the quiz was that the, the, you had to answer uh, um, the, the question and the right answer was my opinion. And um, so the question here is, which is preferable a um, United Britain or a confederation of smaller city-states along the lines of the Anglo-Saxon heptarchy? And the correct answer is, of course, a confederation of smaller city-states along the lines of the Anglo-Saxon heptarchy. So in my sort of libertarian ideal, we would have Cornwall and Wessex and Kent and Sussex and Mercia and Northumbria and so on. And Ireland would be, you know, the four counties or even the five counties if you're really good on your Irish history, you know, there's a central county. And similarly, Scotland would break up into areas and Wales would break up. So it would be much more of a hodgepodge and the concept of Britain and a United Kingdom wouldn't exist. Wow. Well, yeah, I definitely up for that. It sounds, I like it because it sounds reactionary, but it just, like, I want to go back to like, like I want there's, no, to there's no chance of it happening. I mean, it's Obviously. just, it's, it's, you know, it's stupid late night pub talk. Yeah, yeah, I'd go back to just Cumbria. Although Cumbria is a recent name, so I'd go back to like Westmoreland or whatever. But yeah, you know, I'd no, you'd be. I think you'd be part of Northumbria, even though you're on the other side of the, of the. Uh, would that we, be the Pennines? We could up discuss there? that. I mean, we could work that out. I mean, yeah. I, I'm not sure about being tied in with if, them. Listen, Nick, if you're standing for an independent Cumbria and you're bidding to be the first uh, king of an of the independent <laughs> Cumbrian nation, uh, you have my Thanks, vote. Mate. I've considered trying to run up. There. I'm I'm going to be. I'm going to be king of Dumnonia or Kerno, which would be Cornwall. Okay. So I can see a very useful, alliance. you know, West West Coast game alliance for Yeah, I mean, I have been <laughs> approached by certain political parties who said I could stand, but they're not necessarily the ones I want to stand for. But um, I've, I've thought about it, you know what I mean, with my with my likability and massive public profile. But um, maybe you could be the policy guy behind the scenes. <laughs> As someone who became a, a potential Brexit Party MEP for a week, I can tell you that it is not worth the aggro. Wow. In the week that, like, I wasn't going to do it, and then I thought it would get me a bit of publicity before Edinburgh, so I said, okay, I'm standing for the Brexit party. And there were people, uh, can I swear? You can. I mean, YouTube don't love it, but hey, it's, you're a libertarian. Okay. So people were writing, all over my Edinburgh posters, people were writing UKIP, C-U-N-T. Um, they started saying hor horrible things about my kids. Even uh, Comedy Unleashed, who were determined to be apolitical, and I was the sort of the main resident host, the founding resident host of Comedy Unleashed. They sacked me. They said because we don't want you, we don't want any allegiance with any political party. What? So all these things happened in like in the space of a week. They sacked you from what? I just took so much abuse, and I'm quite a thin-skinned guy you know i'm a thin-skinned artist same. and to be a politician you've got to have thick skin hang on what so did Comedy Unleashed sack you from you mean from being a host of the yeah really they didn't want they didn't want anyone uh andrew doyle didn't didn't want um uh, anyone with any allegiance to any polit political party remember this is a while ago this was like 2018 and i think he was trying to make um comedy unleashed apolitical wow Maybe it was 2019. I don't remember, but I, t I lost my job briefly. Wow. Well, we... but they, they, well what happened, what I'd, I'd actually, to be, to be clear, what had happened is, is I um, had already stood down and then uh, Andy Shaw phoned me up and said, look, you're, you, can't do, you can't be the Brexit Party guy in the Comedy Unleashed, so we're going to have to let you go. And then, uh, but I, because I'd already resigned, 
from the Brexit party, I, th- I was then able to say um, uh, it's not an issue because I've already resigned and Andy Shaw was fine about oh. that. So I, that's slightly inaccurate to say I got the sack. They phoned me up to give me the sack, but the change of circumstances <laughs> you <unsacked> right. <laughs> meant that I was reinstated. Well, we love Andrew Doyle and Andy Shaw, but, you know, and Andrew's, oh, yeah, a, bit of, Andrew's a bit of a lefty. So, you know what I mean? They, they make these mistakes. I mean, they, you know, maybe they wouldn't even do it now, but... um. I love that you, uh, you you joined the Brexit party to give yourself some publicity for the Edinburgh Festival, thinking this will go well in the comedy industry yeah. where anyone to the right of Stalin is despised. Yeah, well, my show was Libertarian Love Songs, so uh, I thought it would appeal to the Libertarian contingent. Libertarians seem more cuddly, though, don't they? Are, than... There are very few Libertarians in Edinburgh. Yeah, and they seem more cuddly and, like you say, kind of fantastical and it won't happen, whereas when you're like, yeah. hey, I'm mates with Farage, it's like... <laughs> It's a little bit different, but uh, um, do you know what? what it's interesting, yeah. by the way. If you ask that question in Scotland, which is preferable, a United Kingdom or a kingdom or a confederation of smaller city states, in Scotland, the libertarians will all say United Kingdom because by being pro United Kingdom, they're taking the anti-socialist, anti-Scottish independence stance. Mm. So it's quite interesting. So libertarians south of the border will be pro. Um, Anglo-Saxon heptarchy, but north of the border, they're pro-union. Interesting, yeah. Anything but SNP. I get it. Um, why do they struggle, libertarians? Because people kind of hate them a little bit. Like, like I saw, I remember seeing a Joe Rogan episode with Larry Sharp, who, you, you know, pretty well-known libertarian in New York, and he was really harsh to him. And it was quite strange because Rogan is someone you think of as a sort of small L libertarian, you know, vague libertarian leader. Yeah. He was very harsh to them. And it also... They don't get anywhere these days in mainstream politics. You know, the possible exception would be Thatcher's libertarian leanings. She had a Milton Friedman books. I don't know. We, you, I can ask you about that in a set. But but they seem to struggle a yeah, bit. Yeah, Hayek. She was a big Hayek yeah. fan. But they seem to... Why do they struggle? And Why are they sort of hated by the, the mainstream or struggle to make any headway? I don't know. I think part of the reason is that... Um, you, you know, I, I get branded... Well, we all do, but I was very early to this to be branded far right. And uh, I always used to say, how is somebody that believes in having as little state as possible far right? And I've like I've had massive arguments with Hal, Hal Cruttenden about this, like endless. Hal and I, I've known Hal since I was seven years old. So we're quite, you know, the first girl I ever got off with was at Hal's house. <laughs> So, but Hal's just turned out to be this ridiculous lefty and, and, and I'm, you know, somewhere else, but on the political compass. But that this is an argument, you know, how, because far right in my head involves, you know, Mussolini or whatever, a massive government state action. And uh, libertarians argue for as little state as possible and peaceful. You know, libertarians are very anti-war, pro-peace. And, you know, I think it's partly because for some reason... Um, the the idea of left and right is is just a false it's a false map and the you're familiar with the political yeah. compass I'm sure and so that left right authoritarian libertarian is much actually a much more accurate measure of you know people's philosophy or their politics and but because a lot of because for example Thatcher who was sort of in very much in the libertarian direction certainly in her utterances and Reagan. Uh, they would be in the bottom right quadrant, whereas Mussolini or whatever would be in the in the top right quadrant, authoritarian right. But it, that doesn't matter. If you're right, you're authoritarian. And then a lot of people like the sort of um, UKIP were campaigning for less government and UKIP got conflated with, you know, the EDL and all those nationalist parties quite a bit. But because of of anything to do with nationalism gets branded far right by the left who like to smear their ideological enemies. You know, I, I've actually argued that it, I, I tried to have this argument. I used to write quite a bit for the guardian and I used to say to them, look, you're, you're positioning yourself as authoritarian left and you, you, you've got this wrong. You want to be down there in the sort of libertarian left uh, quadrant because you know, that's where you a lot of your sort of readers who read you who are artists and so on, they don't realise it, but that's where they are on the compass. But no, the Guardians went gone for this much more um, libert- uh, authoritarian left stance. Anyway, um, so, but if you in the Venn diagram, a lot of people who sympathise with libertarian values will also maybe be 
in that sort of Brexity, uh, Thatchery spectrum as well. And the, so as a result, the, the two get, you know, right and libertarian get conflated. There is crossover in the Venn diagram, but, but they're not one and the same. No, exactly. You know, Corbyn would Corbyn and Gandhi and people like that would all be libertarian left. Yeah, yeah, because Corbyn was against a lot of the COVID restrictions and so on. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. The compass is useful. I actually come out incredibly just like very centre, just like a tiny bit to the right of centre. I admit it's moving slightly more authoritarian as I get older. It's just it's creeping a little bit as the world gets more ridiculous. Yeah, I I don't like. I come out um, sort of slightly right and slightly libertarian. And and I want to be bottom centre is where I would like to be because that's the argument I make is for bottom centre or maybe bottom centre right. But I actually come out, you know, just slightly libertarian and slightly right wing. But the questions are so Yeah, annoying. some people think the questions are rigged by lefties anyway, I've heard. I mean, that's the kind of thing we would say, but that's what I've heard. But um, I don't believe the person who wrote that political compass is left wing. You just think the questions think, are not that think, good? Well, I just found them annoying because there was it, the, the the answer was always more nuanced than they would let you have. But I, I think somebody who who is trying to, I mean, that the, the the purpose of that compass is to make the point that it's not just left and right; it's authoritarian and libertarian, and and that changes the way the prism through which we see politics. And somebody who's changing, trying to change the prism through which we see politics, is in my opinion, more likely to be libertarian <laughs> than than authoritarian. So it wouldn't surprise me if it's somebody, you know, a little bit in that bottom right quadrant who did that. Yes. Since we're talking about this, do you have any thoughts on the, the, the sort of, at the time of recording, fairly topical division on the right following the NatCon conference, which I don't know if you went to. I went to the dinner, but I, I was too hungover to go to the main conference, but I very rarely drink. But um I didn't go, I was too tired, and, um, but it looked very interesting. What was the dinner like? The dinner was great. I mean, Douglas Murray spoke, later got called a fascist on Twitter, but the dinner was nice, lots of interesting people there, and some... Was it a big, was it like black tie? It wasn't black tie, it was fairly chill, it was, but it was obviously a beautiful venue, the Natural History Museum, who then later distanced themselves on Twitter. You know, it was under that massive, I think it's a, blue, it's a blue whale skeleton, and it... And they took the dollar. I know that room. It's it's a big room. It probably seats several yeah, hundred. Yeah, it was a great event. There's loads of people there, and Murray spoke really yeah. well. And he was just that funny. Um, I saw. I once saw Jimmy Carr do a corporate gig in that room to like the British Entrepreneurs Society or something wow. like that. And it was a masterclass in how to do a corporate gig. Yeah, yeah. Well, this was a slightly different type of gig. But uh, you know, it's one of these things where the optics of it on Twitter. Of course, you've got the idiots on Twitter calling it fascist, which is very strange because it's it's founded by a Jewish person. But hey, why why let facts get in the way? But the thing I wanted to ask you about was, and 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 Lord Frost has written about this. There's this there's this uh, disagreement between the libertarian or Thatcherite side, at least. And this new side that's sort of more protectionist, and they're basically saying they're post-liberal. They're saying that, and they're post sort of libertarian economy, and they're saying that's not going to work. And they're, they're going down more of a sort of Bannon path, Steve Bannon path of kind of economic nationalism. So I just wonder if you have any thoughts on this this sort of argument within the right about that. Uh, I haven't followed it that closely. I've just become when Brexit was going on, and they were trying to undermine it. That was one of the most interested in politics I've ever been, and like every day I'd be you know reading every utterance by anyone involved on twitter and you know reading all the journalism and so on i got so involved but i've just become so disillusioned uh with everything that's happened since maybe 2019 i mean i saw it coming i knew that when i i, I didn't vote for johnson in 2019 i didn't vote for anyone i just bought my ballot paper which is what i usually do but the the i just knew that Everyone was so happy when Johnson won and they all thought, we're going to get Brexit. And I just was like, no, you're not. And, uh, and we're going to get a shrinking government and lower taxes and all the things that Liz Truss attempted to do. And I was like, no, nah, no, nah, you're not going to get that. I was going to ask about and, Truss. Um, oh, sorry, carry on. Yeah, so it, it's OK. So where do I stand on that argument is like my bottom principle is anything that delivers less government, less blob, lower taxes etc is the right path to choose and like the problem with whatever it is regulation laws whatever they're easier to add to than to take away 
And so the, the incremental effects over time, over decades, hundreds of years, is that we just have this bloated, bloated state that keeps getting added to rather than having it taken away. And I, I, I just don't think it can end, Nick. I think the only thing that can end it is the collapse of the currency and with it the collapse of the state. Otherwise, even like the only difference with Thatcher it, is that the state kept growing. It just didn't grow by as much as it had grown under the previous regime. It still was a lot bigger by the time she'd finished than when she began. And that was with her, Mrs. You know, anti-government and small individual choice and all that. And I mean, if you just look at the tax code as a sort of symbol of 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 um, of of excess regulation and excess government. Um, the last time the tax code shrunk was Nigel Lawson in, I think, 1989. He removed a tax with every budget. And ever since then, it's grown and it tripled in size under under Gordon Brown. And then Osborne came to power threatening to, uh, you know, with his Office of Tax Simplification, promising to simplify it. And even with his Office of Tax Simplification, it doubled again under his tenure. And then it just keep. And I, I think it's it's not quite double from where Osborne st stood down, but you know, it's harder to double because it's so big, but it, the magnitude with which it's grown because of all the subsidies during COVID and everything, it's just, it's endless. Yeah. And, you know, there's so many people sucking on the teat of it all. It just, it's endless, I'm afraid. And I'm very disillusioned. And so I've, I'm just taking the line of, there's no point arguing about politics because you can't change anything. I'd, I'll write comic songs about it and satirical songs uh, and but m meanwhile, I just try and put my own house in order, and and that's all that I can actually affect myself. All right, fair enough. Um, yeah, pretty bleak. But I, I mean, I I feel pretty bleak about the country as well. I mean, why did they get rid of trust? Specific? Because was it the if you talk to a, you know economists or people in the extended blob, they'll say well it was the liability-driven investments and it was going to tank the pensions market. I have a kind of vague understanding of these things. I have a kind of limited. If someone explains it to me for that night and I have to talk about it on telly, I can I can know it for about three hours and then I kind of forget it because I don't have a fundamental understanding. But but what 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 was the real reason in your in your opinion about trust and quieting? Well, the the first thing to note is that that pension situation was not a creation of Liz Truss. It just came to a head under her tenure that had been building for many years. And it might have been a storm in a teacup anyway. And I mean, you just need to look at the hysteria around Braverman and her driving tickets that's going on at the minute to know that anything, anything they can get you on that the left can attack you on, they will. And, you know, they met, eventually they got rid of Boris, just just relentless, any no mercy, anything they can get you. And I think the mistake that Truss made was not sticking to her guns. And if you look at what happened in the bond market, the, the reason that 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 um, uh, um, Kwarteng was was forced out was because of the, the spike in the bond market because of spiking gilt yields. But what had happened, and the, the media did not broadcast this, and it's criminal. And it, the Bank of England, do you remember when the Bank of England sold um, the British gold at the bottom of the market uh, under Gordon Brown's instruction in 1999? They sold two thirds of British gold. Did you know that? Uh, no, but I'll take your word for it. OK, so at the bottom, it's, it's known in the gold market as Brown's bottom. And it was a 20-year generational low in the market. It was the worst, single worst trade in history, almost. And Gordon Brown, when he had no need to do so, sold two-thirds of British gold at the bottom of the market at $250 an ounce, give or take. And the reason that it was the bottom of the market is that the bank, because of its commitment to transparency or whatever, broadcast before it was selling the gold that it was going to sell the gold on these dates. So all the buyers in the gold market knew this gold, this this extraordinary amount of gold was about to come on the market. And they just stood back and said, there's no point buying because it's we're about to have this dumping of gold on the market. And so it hit the low and it was like, you know, it was the lowest price for gold since um, like 1978 or something. It was that bad. So in 40 or 50 years now, it's the it was it's the all time low. Now, what happened with 
bonds, you may remember that um, with quantitative easing, and um, uh, they're actually called gilts in the UK, but with quantitative easing, and um, then all the money that got printed during COVID, the Bank of England printed money, and with that money, it went and bought government debt. It bought gilts. And so that enabled that enabled the government to borrow at low rates and that gave the government lots of money to spend. And then it um, because of inflation and everything else, it it decided, you know, with COVID passed, it was going to do what's called quantitative tightening. So it was going to sell the bonds that it had bought. It was going to sell the gilts that it had printed the money to buy. And it advertised that it was going to sell these gilts starting on a certain day. And the day that it was going to sell those gilts was on the Wednesday and the Thursday, the two days before Kwarteng's emergency budget on the Friday. So if you actually look at a chart of rising gilt yields, they were rising. They'd already spiked before the Kwarteng budget. Now, the, the problem with that Kwarteng budget, by the way, is while I supported every single tax cut they made, they were also... Um, uh, increasing spending because of the um, fuel, you know, subsidising people's fuel bills. So they were, the problem with that budget is that it, it wasn't balanced. They were cutting taxes on the one hand and not um, reducing spending on the other. So that was the mistake they made. But nevertheless, they, Kwarteng, got totally blamed for spiking government uh, guilt yield, yields. But the reason that yields spiked was that the Bank of England was started selling gilts uh, the day before or two days before when for over a decade it had been a net buyer. So and, and they advertised the sale to the market in exactly the way they advertised the sale with the gold price and nobody reported on it. And it was ju it's just such a misunderstanding. And, and, and unfortunately, the unfortunate consequence of that is that it made ta tax cuts politically political suicide for a generation yeah and i it, and that's an awful thing yeah and um, i'm sure the bank of england people would have something different to say but but yeah I, I i mean i understood it like i say at the time the guilt yields i learned it all but then i forgot it all again but see i know people at the bank of england and they they obviously it's basically it's like if you buy a guilt if you, so let's say i lend you 100 quid and and you have to pay me five percent on, on that hundred quid. So if I lend you hundred quid, we have a, what's called a bond. Um, you know, that debt is a bond and, and you pay me 5% on the hundred quid that I lend you. Like you, like a bank would pay you hundred quid if you leave it in the bank. But then I can then take that bond that I've sold you and I can go and sell it on to someone else. Uh, and I say, look, I've got this bond that yields 5%. But if suddenly the interest rate goes up to 6% and I've got a bond that only yields 5%, the value of that bond will go down a lot. And so um, that's effectively what happened in the gilt market. Hopefully that yeah. makes sense. But the I Bank can, of England as I'm well, they have the it, lost look on Yeah, well, like, it's, it's not my area of expertise, but I, you know, if I, if I study for a few hours after this podcast, I'll, I'll get it again. But it's, um, it's it, but I do understand that the Bank of England, because I speak to people there, because I live in North London, so I know all the extended blob. And they always say they've got, they've got this motto. I can't remember exactly, but it's a kind of their version of the Hippocratic Oath. It's like, you know, we, our job is to keep stability and all these kind of things. So I suppose that's just fundamentally at odds with with the sort of libertarian Thatcherite growth mindset, isn't it? I mean, can you really even have a Bank of England and ha have growth? I mean, you know, I know they have to regulate the economy, but do you think, would you even have a Bank of England? No. Of course you wouldn't. <laughs> no, we'd use independent money. We'd use gold and Bitcoin. We don't need central banking. We Fiat money is the single biggest evil in all of this. And why should, like, 12 blokes sat around a table decide the price of money surely you know they don't set the price of bananas so why should they set the price of money the market can set the price of money perfectly well and 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 if the market had set the price of money the price of money would have been much higher for much longer and we would never would have had this ridiculously unaffordable housing market that we have yeah so it's a massive topic but do you do you think crypto is the the uh, the alternative to centralized current digital currencies and all that kind of thing and fiat and fiat money do you, do you think it's actually going to work as well because with my very layman's understanding i see a sort of war between these centralized currencies that you kind of mainstream politicians want versus bitcoin and other cryptos that they can't they can't really meddle with uh i don't know is bitcoin is crypto going to win is it going to survive or are they going to take over with their own digital currency or something 
Bitcoin is the only thing that can save us. It, it, I'm not. I, I specifically say Bitcoin rather than crypto. And you know, there's a there's a saying amongst Bitcoin is Bitcoin fixes this. And you know, we we all argue that the 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 fundamental evil in all of this is fiat money, and Bitcoin enables people to opt out peacefully. And it is attracting more and more capital. And the more people, the more people that start saving in Bitcoin than start saving in pounds and dollars. And the more people that start transacting, uh, the more capital it will attract and the less likely the fiat system can be propped up. Yeah, because obviously and it is people an, in these institutions have an agenda. But I know it's even, even even up till quite recently when I spoke to them, they'd say things like, oh, it's for drug dealers and criminals. You're thinking like, of course it's ridiculous. It you know, it's obviously far beyond that. But um, if you think, you know, they're just smearing it in the same way that they smear their ideological enemies. But it is a most brilliant technological invention. It is backed by extraordinary amounts of computer power. And, um, you know, it has been a life for people in like Turkey and Venezuela and Argentina. It has been a lifeline it has saved them because there's no functioning money system in those places. And, you know, it's it's the it's the. It's the one thing that can, that, like I wrote a piece the other day on my Substack, which you should all read, called, it's called The Flying Frisbee, but there will not be a revolution. And in the old days, you know, you could either rise up and overthrow the regime, but that option isn't open to us anymore because we're, we're unarmed and the state is armed and there's too big a mismatch. Or you could... Um, withhold taxes and starve the monster that way. But you can't withhold taxes because almost all taxes are deducted at source. You can't go into a petrol station and go, I want to buy, a, uh, you know, 10 gallons of petrol. And by the way, I'm withholding taxes. You can't do it. Uh, you can't go to the pub and have a pint of beer, but I'm withholding taxes. You can't, uh, if you've got a job, you know, your, your income is deducted at source unless you're a freelancer. So you'd, it's just impossible to withhold taxes. So the two options, rising up and overthrowing the regime or withholding taxes, they're neither, neither is open to us. And therefore, there cannot be a revolution. But if, the, if you starve the monster of capital by using Bitcoin, then that is a third peaceful option. Hmm. Very interesting. And I did read the piece. And actually, I've got some quotes from it I was going to ask you about in a minute. So yeah, Flying Frisbee, one of the best substacks, as I said. But um, So this is... This is really interesting, but can so but so to an absolute layman like me, is is the problem that China and whoever will come up with their own digital currency and they'll try and somehow displace Bitcoin? Then we have the cashless society and we'll be trapped using their currency. And doesn't matter. It doesn't make any difference. Okay. If China issues its own currency, like it, it'll just be a national currency, whereas Bitcoin is an international currency. And you know, if you just look at the scalability of it. You know, there's a limit to how big the pound can grow. And that limit is the UK. And even the US dollar, which is the international reserve currency, there's a limit to how big it, it can grow. And, and um, you know, there's a, there's a, it's very hard to, to open a US dollar bank account, particularly if you're not American. And, and then, you know, and if you're some dude in Africa who has, doesn't have access to basic financial services, how are you supposed to use uh, the US dollar? Whereas Bitcoin, all you need to use it is uh, it, to transact in it is a smartphone. And now, I think in a global population of seven and a half um, billion, there's now something like seven billion smartphone users. More people have a smartphone than have a toilet. And all they need to start transacting in Bitcoin is, is, is a, um, a phone. And, you know, Bitcoin's divisible to eight decimal places. And so the Satoshi, which is, you know, an nth of a penny, the, 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 the lowest denomination, that's likely to become the sort of default uh, tipping thing, the default air mile of the internet. And Bitcoin has the potential to be the cash system, the default cash system for the internet. And the internet is, is 7, 8 billion people. It's not 350 million people in America or 65 million people in the UK. So there's just a scalability to Bitcoin that no national currency can have. The one way a national currency could possibly compete is were they to back their currency, were they to back their CBDCs with gold. But that's extremely unlikely to happen. China might do it in order to um, uh, try and compete with the dollar, but it, but it's unlikely. So how will they try and stop it? Inevitably, they, they, they're threatened by Bitcoin. But what will they do to, to, to stop it? 
I think it's too late. They had their chance years ago and they didn't realise what it was. And But, you know, there's like this anti-Bitcoin faction in the US and it's kind of led by Elizabeth Warren. And they all go, oh, Bitcoin uses lots of energy. Therefore, it's uh, bad for the environment. Green, green. But the anti-Bitcoin arguments are really, really incoherent. And you watch like Bitcoin is like a religion and it's full of the most intelligent people in the world, motivated, intelligent, whether it's lawyers or computer programmers or coders or philosophers, it's full of amazing people. And it's like you look at all the memes that come out of Bitcoin. They're so irreverent and anti-authoritarian. And and anyone who attacks Bitcoin, they're like a, a Michael Saylor calls them. What does he call them? Uh, uh, um, what are those things like wasps? Hornets. Uh, uh, hornets. Cyber hornets, he calls them. And anyone who attacks Bitcoin, this swarm of hornets, like they debunk the argument. Uh, the in, you know the intellectuals will debunk the argument, and the 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 piss takers will make funny memes and take the piss. And it, it just they just it, it it's such a coherent um, force. And yet it's totally unplanned and unregulated and unstructured. It's totally born of the free market. And so, and you know, they, get, they can ban crypto mining in America. Fine, crypto mining will just move somewhere else. But, but, and then America will lose out on all that investment. But then America's a very um, sue, you know, orientated around suing. If they try to ban, you know, Bitcoin mining is all centered in Texas. And Texas likes the, uh, the industry that comes from Bitcoin mining. It earns fortunes out of it. So if Elizabeth Warren will try and make it illegal, Texas will just go, no, we don't want it to it be illegal. You can make it illegal in wherever you're from if you want. But we're, making it, we're keeping it legal in Texas because we think it's a force for good. And so it's just in practical terms to make it illegal will be very hard to do. And if they do make it illegal, you know it's succeeded. All right. Some good news for once on the podcast. But what about these people like Peter Schiff, who are sort of the gold bugs? And they, they are. He's just wrong. Peter Schiff is a god. You know, he's so articulate about inflation and money printing and Austrian economics and all that stuff. But he is just wrong about Bitcoin and has been wrong for 10 years, 15 years now. And he's just wedded to his position and he probably gets loads of clicks like he's an old school gold bug. And I used to go to Bitcoin conferences back in the day and I'd be the oldest guy at the Bitcoin conference and the youngest guy at the gold conference. And the old gold bugs, they, Bitcoin has done everything that they thought gold and silver were going to do and they've never forgiven it. And, and, but it's, it's a generational thing. And the, that's the other thing people don't appreciate about Bitcoin is everyone who is in the space is young and, and it's the future. And if you've got kids and you, you're thinking, what are my kids going to do? Go and work in crypto because that's where the opportunity is. Right. And so people like Schiff, they basically think it's a bubble still. It's not a realistic. Uh, He's just yeah. wrong. They won't, people actually won't actually use it. So therefore, it can only be a bubble and all that kind of thing broadly. Yeah, but he's like people give it to him. They say, here's some Bitcoin, use it. And he just refuses. He's <laughs> like, I really like Bitcoin, uh, Peter Schiff. But he's just totally wedded to his position on that. And it kind of suits brand Schiff to be the anti-Bitcoin guy because he becomes the figurehead of all their mockery. And, and every time the Bitcoin price goes up, people start posting pictures of Peter Schiff when he looked really young and then pictures of Peter Schiff when he looked really old and go, look what happened since Peter Schiff started <laughs> um, shorting Bitcoin. That's funny. Well, I was following it all a lot at one point when I thought I could make money from it. I do have a little bit of Bitcoin, but not a significant amount. I'm just going to keep it. You should put, you, you know, you're having a good time of it the last year or two. I imagine you're making a, a tiny bit of money, a little bit of money. Keep some of your savings in Bitcoin as a, as a matter of discipline. You know, keep 5% or 10% of your savings in Bitcoin. Because I'm a bit of a boomer, Dominic, my, my worry is like, I've got this little bit of Bitcoin. It'll one day, it'll suddenly spike massively, but then I won't even be able to get rid of it. I won't understand the tech or, or I won't be able to sell it. You know what I mean? Like I'll just have kept it because I don't understand it well enough. I just thought I'll buy it now because I know it. I bought it actually reasonably low. What's it at now? I actually bought it reasonably low. It's it's about twenty six, twenty seven thousand dollars, twenty one, twenty two thousand. Okay, quid. I bought about five thousand. I didn't buy like you know getting becoming a billionaire. I, I bought the sort of, but it's still reasonably low. You quadrupled your money. I mean, what what other investment could you could you do that with over the last few yeah, years? Yeah, my only problem was I didn't have enough money at the time to make a sizable investment. That was that's the only slight bummer. Um, well, that's you and your comedian's way of thinking. Most people would be happy if they quadrupled <laughs> their money, but you're like you're clutch, you're finding yeah, negatives. Yeah. In I can always do that. Um, all right, well, that was really interesting on Bitcoin. But you, you mentioned your article then. I actually, um, 
quoted, I, I printed out a quote from it because I, I'd read the article and I listened to you. Because one of the great things about Dominic Substitute, by, by the way, is that he reads it out as well. And you even read that one, Walking Down a Beach in Miami, which was very cool. And Because um, <laughs> I, I always ask on this podcast, is the country finished? This is one, one of my obsessions. And we've talked about it privately. And, um, and you sort of address it in this piece. And you say, at school, we learn about dramatic irony. When the audience sees what the characters in the play don't, that's how I feel when I watch what Western Europe is careering towards. From energy to fiat money to mass immigration, we don't seem to realize what we are doing to ourselves, nor what the long-term consequences of some of these decisions, if you can call them that, are going to be. And then later in the piece, you say, I suggest that pretty much that everything that isn't working has some kind of state action at its heart, yet the solution always seems to be more state. When will people realize that the state itself is the problem? So we've touched on that quite a lot, but this question of whether the country's finished, do you think it's finished and is there anything we can do about it? You sort of said we can't because we, we're stuck with these, we can't rebel, we can't, you may have already answered this, we can't rebel anymore because we're sort of tied into the system. Well, I, that's, you can rebel, but you can't have a proper revolution. Yeah. Um, like occasionally somebody will post on Twitter, like, you know, the streets of England in the 1960s. And, you know, you'll be on a drive through London in the 1960s or the 1930s or whatever it is, or even the 70s. And the England or the Britain that we had then has gone. And we're never going to get that back. And if you look at, um, you know, they, the, the, the census, the latest census figures came out a few months ago and everyone got their knickers in a twist. But I don't believe those census figures are accurate because I think a lot of immigrants don't realise what a census is and they, they're illegal ones that are risking their own skin by filling in the census accurately. What gives you a much clearer idea of where, where immigration has gone is if you look at the demographics of primary schools. And if you look at the demographics of primary schools, they will be the demographics of the country in 30 years. And I haven't got the figures to hand, but I think it was, I'm going to get this wrong, but it's something like white English minority in primary schools by the early 2030s. And I just think that is a most profound, you know, if the people have changed, then the country inevitably will change. And you know, my own daughter, I've got two daughters, but my eldest daughter, um, you know, she she's lived, she's 20 years old and she's lived with me and she's mixed race. And I talked to her about English history and it is literally white man bad. There's no pride in English history. It's just all shame. And I, and she started going, white people have never been persecuted the other day. And I was going, what? <laughs> And then she said, yeah, white people have never been slaves. And I was going, do you realise what the etymology of the word slave is? Yeah, Slav. Uh, uh, exactly, Slav. And then, she, and then you, know, the, you know this thing about why um, you know, the Arabs were massive slave traders, but there's very few black people in Arab societies in the same way there are lots of black people in post-slavery America. And the reason there were very few black people in Arab societies is the Arabs castrated all their slaves. Now, so who's the more inhumane one here? The one who castrated the slaves or the ones who didn't? So, you know, we're so mistaught about stuff. And, you know, the English, we were the first country in human history to uh, make slavery illegal. And we then allocated 3% of GDP, which is more than we allocate to the military today. 3% of GDP at a time when people are much poorer and numerous Victorians at great risk to their lives went to sea to put an end to the slave trade. And that is an extraordinary thing that the English did and something to be proud of, really proud of. The first, you know, everyone's guilty about the empire. If you look at every other empire in history, the, the British Empire was about as good as it gets. And, you know, um, it, of course, it's not black and white and there's evil and it's always more nuanced. But we were the first country in history to put a stop to it. And yet somehow... Our history is something to be ashamed of and not to be proud of. And so what they're teaching kids about ourselves is, and there'll be a backlash, there's already a backlash, but um, like if I'm talking like this and my own daughter thinks that like that, you get an idea of how widespread the, the, the misinformation is. So the other 
thing is, like, I look at history. And for me, you know, my dad always used to say there was no golden age. Golden age is just in your imagination. But for me, if there was a golden age, it was like from maybe 1880 to 1910. That period then, it was just a period of extraordinary invention, innovation, wage growth, uh, uh, education. It was just a brilliant period. And, and you look at the great people that that pre period produced, the great inventors, the great scientists, the great writers and so on. And there's just no way that relative to the rest of the world... Britain can be the leading force that it was in that in that generation between 1880 and 1910. We're just so far away from that, and in many cases we're we're trading uh, off our past. And and I was talking to a guy yesterday um, who's a a big cheese raising money for a Qatari industry, and we were just discussing like the how well the English are still perceived around the world because the people around the rest of the world still think you know the english gentleman the elegant the polite guy the man you can trust rule of law fair play all those principles that were associated with the english you know my word is my bond all that kind of stuff but now we are exporting through the civil service and the foreign offices and so on like we'll we'll send a very i don't know he he actually used this example, so I can't cite it. But to to countries where homosexuality is not perceived in the same way that it is here, we'll send like a very gay diplomat or something. Now you might say, well, that's sending out an important message, or you could say it's rude, or you could say, in my point of view, it's just it's not necessary because we have equality here, and 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 you want to send out a diplomat who's going to get your country the best deals in the place that he goes to, not someone who's going to fall out with everyone. But we're sort of exporting woke, if you like. And um, it's uh, going to change the way that we're perceived abroad. And, you know, we, we, we don't realise what we've done. And it's, it's going to be very hard to go back, even 10 years. Yeah, it's a great point. And Carl Benjamin made the point in one of his speeches that he was somewhere else. He was in Europe or, or America, I can't remember. And any, every, every nation that was mentioned had some negative and some you know, negative connotation, even the European nations, except England. And people, no one had a problem with them. And we did have this incredible reputation dis despite the empire or in some ways because of it. You're right, and it's such a tragedy that we've, we've fallen into this self-loathing. Yeah, and on the slave thing, I mean, Spanish Muslims in the 9th century AD is where this Slav slave thing comes from. So, yeah, they could just as easily be teaching that. We never hear that. Yeah. And, um, and, 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 I, I, and Barbary, who's, I, I, what about the Barbary slave trade? No, we're never taught about the Barbary slave trade. And, you know, there's 1.2 uh, Europeans, Western Europeans stolen slavery in North Africa. Who teaches you about I know, that? And it's partly colonialism, but it's partly our importing of American values and their uh, their slavery, and, and we think that's our fault. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, uh, actually, Nick, sorry to talk over you. That's a hundred percent what it is. It's it's because America's the culture of America dominates the world, and so you know American music, American clothing, American everything, American food just has is hugely disproportionate res relative to the rest of the world. So the fact that, for example, Mauritania only made slavery illegal in 1981. <laughs> How can they have done that? <laughs> you know, just nobody knows. And and so my daughter's going, how come we only know, you know, the transatlantic slave trade gets conflated with slavery. And obviously the transatlantic slave trade is part of slavery, but they are not one and the same thing. And they're still, you know, look at... Uh, uh, you know, various countries in the Middle East, you know, how they build a lot of the infrastructure there. It's pretty close to slavery, as close as it gets. I mean, I think some of them are paid, but they have their passports taken away from them and so on. And, you know, it, 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 and so my daughter goes, well, how come we don't hear about any of this? And I, I literally think it's just America because the, the, the slave trade is part of America, the transatlantic slave trade is part of American history. It just, obliterates everything else yeah even though if you're actually to tot up the numbers they're incomparable absolutely and there's a further irony there that america is england's greatest achievement because uh, 
we invented it and now, now it imports its culture back to us because it's gone a bit wrong. But yeah, it, it's a very good, good point. And, and actually, and on the slavery point as well, if you want to wind up people in uh, North London, you s- use Douglas Murray's line, when is Turkey going to apologize for the Ottoman Empire? They, they, that one gets you in a pickle or they just look at you blankly. But um, yeah, it's tragic. So how... Well, we're not talking about the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. And that was enormous. It's mad. And we're the only ones that have to apologize and hate ourselves forever. I know, and the problem is we talk about this, but it's, it's all futile. about prisms, the prism through which you view the world. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And given that, how do we, my other question I love to ask, how do we win this culture war, Dom? Or is it, can it even be won? Or is it just a sort of increasingly restrictive state? I, I keep hearing this phrase, we mentioned anarcho-capitalism. A phrase I keep hearing now on Twitter is anarcho-tyranny. And a great example was the Just Stop Oil guy we've just seen at the time of recording where a, a normal, I think he was a builder or he was in construction or something, he was trying to get to work. He threw these Just Stop Oil idiots out the way. The police, who were literally standing around doing nothing, suddenly pounced on him. And what we have is this, people are saying it's anarcho-tyranny. It's where not only the criminals go unpunished, but good people doing the right thing are punished. And we arguably saw it with Daniel Penny in America with the Jordan Neely case. So, so you can't have a society like this. But my point... I'm afraid anarchism, anarchy is a word that's just been conflated with other things. And to, to you know, the police will always complain about anarchists. And like anarchists are peaceful, whatever. And when the police say anarchists, they mean, as you say, what they're now calling anarcho-tyranny. So the word anarchy has been conflated to mean something that it no longer means. Yeah. Um, but you're like, I, the zero patient in all of this, you know what I mean by zero patient? Yeah. The patient zero. You well, sound- no, patient zero, like the, the, the first sort of Euro example, No. Yeah, yeah. The the like in a zombie film, the 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 place where the virus started, yeah. the first person to get the virus, and the, in the zombie film they have to go and kill the zero patient either to get the antidote or to destroy the virus. The patient zero in all of this is well, it's, it's kind of two things, but they're 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 uh, together in the in the Venn diagram. Our system of money and our system of tax. And, you know, for all the battles, the noble battles that are being waged over free speech and free this and free that, if you got rid of fiat, the it's fiat enables the oxygen for all these stupid things to breathe. They're all products of the state one way or the other because they're all lobbying and getting some special favour from the state. Without the oxygen of fiat money, they would not be able to breathe. And so I often argue that if everyone put all their efforts instead of you know going over the top and fighting for free speech and getting cancelled and all this which are really really important battles but the you know the the ring of the ring that needs to be thrown into the fires of mount doom is fiat money and you know the battles that are, are over free speech are the riders of rohan um, you know, fighting orcs in, 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 you know, close to Saruman's towers or whatever. But the, the, the one that really matters is Frodo in the ring and Mount Doom, and that is fiat money. Hmm. Very interesting. So that's how we win the cultural... It goes all the way back to... I mean, you've got this um, background there, your book, Daylight Robbery, How Tax Shaped Our Past and Will Change Our Future. So it's not surprised that you think fiat money and tax are the problems. But um, so you basically... You design a society the way you tax it. Interesting. So, what is the what is the moment? So, is Bitcoin the the throwing of the of the of the ring back into the fires of Mount Doom or whatever it is, Sauron's thing, and it, or it all ends? It, how how is it done? Uh, Bitcoin is the invention of a new and better ring. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, I mean, I, but what, what do we do then, Dom, to win this culture Because we're not going to get rid of fiat money anytime soon. Save in Bitcoin. Use Bitcoin. Carry on fighting your fight and put your own house in order. All right. Pretty good answer. That's all you can do, isn't it? Stand up yeah. straight. Um, clean your room. Yeah, and make your bed. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty cool. There's, there's almost, that's almost a perfect ending. I'm thinking we should probably end on that because that's such a big question. You've, you've only got a few minutes. Unless... I've only got a few minutes, so that's a that's a perfect place to end. I'm happy to end there. If okay, you want. it's a pity because there's so much else though. Like I didn't ask you about Brexit, lockdowns. There's so many other things, but we, we... GB News. I know your your listeners want to know. Oh about yeah, GB go on. News. Then we should address that quickly. Then and try and get me in trouble. Uh, so they uh, they, we, they, we, they do always tweet me like, "When's Dom? Why is Dom taking off?" It is very sad that you're not on there. I mean, you you were a great asset. I thought. 
I was a, such a charming presenter. Yeah. The viewers loved me. Yeah, yeah you're a great presenter. <laughs> so what are you doing now in, instead? My Substack's really taken off, so that's taking up a lot of my attention. I've been writing some new songs, and I'm going to be releasing them shortly. Uh, I'm working on a new book about gold, history of gold, and I'm going to be taking a show about gold to the Edinburgh Festival. And um, I've uh, that between all of that, um, that's taking up all my time and effort. So people should go to the Flying Frisbee Substack. And what is the link? Flyingfrisbee.com flyingfrisbee.com and you do all sorts of articles it's investment advice but it's also just culture war type articles and you sort of give dispatches from conferences and you read stuff out you have guests sometimes as well i think now i do do i'm trying to do video content like you i i had a very i hosted a thing called the virgin podcast a long time ago and it was extremely popular but unfortunately it got cancelled because of an arsehole in the guardian <laughs> but and i used to do a an investment podcast for years in the noughties and um, I'm sort of trying to revive it because, as I'm sure you know, in a discovering, it's such a good way to meet people. And those, pe those people who host podcasts where they're talking, you know, whether it's Constantin or Joe Rogan or whatever, they just have extraordinary, extraordinarily powerful networks. You know, they're made, you know, because when you have a conversation with someone in a podcast, it's a heightened conversation. You get through much more than you would get in, you know, an hour just in the pub or whatever. And, and so they have that, but they have that with different people and they win their trust and they're trusted and they're liked and, and their networks are just really... Like Joe Rogan must have the most powerful network in the world. Yeah, and that was where Constantin did better than me. I started that podcast with Francis 2016, but he was much better at the networking aspect was I've been too shy and introverted. Not also need to get my video sorted. The sun's lights come in and completely ruined my shot today. You've got a great shot for the video listeners. Well, but yeah, we're getting there. We started again. I, I, you cannot... Uh, Constantin is a formidable intellect and and, and it's again it's a, as a result of having all these podcasts you have all these conversations over and over again you just suddenly clarify your own thought and you 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 improve your ability to articulate thoughts but you also clarify your own philosophy and he's just so sure of who he is and what he thinks and why he thinks what it is what why he thinks what he does that it just means that whenever he comes up against someone on question time, whatever it is, or like he did that speech at the Oxford Union, he just is so articulate about it and he destroys his uh, the people he's arguing with. And and so as a result, he gets, you know, he has become a formidable interviewer. Although you're pretty smart yourself, Dom. You got a 136 on your Thank IQ you. test. I got a 137. <laughs> wasn't the same test. Wasn't a standardized test. It's hilarious that I got a 137. I did this Mensa test once. I got a 137. It wasn't the same test. I'm sure you'd beat me, but it's funny that we, I got one point more than you. What, what was your test? I don't know. It was an online one. There was me, my dad and my son, and we all did one. And I got 136. My son got 132. And my dad got 128. And I'm like, I'm never doing another <laughs> IQ test again. That's what I'm like. I'm like, 137, <laughs> not touching it. But you know what? I'll the, take that. Uh, economics is my Achilles heel, so that's where I just, you know, then it falls apart. So I'm just very much towards... But there's no economics in IQ tests. Oh, good. Yeah, that's true. That's probably why I got 137. But um, anyway, who cares about that? Well, definitely follow Dom on the Flying Frisbee. And your, what is your um, Twitter? At Dominic At Dominic Frisbee. Frisbee. Always useful to have your own name. And you've also got this uh, musical. Do you want to quickly promote that? Yeah, I'd love to. I totally forgot about that. The most important thing in my whole life, and I don't say that lightly, you know, as my whole professional life and also to an extent my personal life, you know, aside from family and kids and stuff, is that people listen to this podcast, this serialised podcast that I put together during the lockdown based on my dad's story called Kisses on a Postcard. And we just won the silver, actually, in the uh, New York Festivals Awards, which apparently is the radio equivalent of the Oscars. We won silver for best serialised podcast. It's uh, 10 episodes, uh, roughly half an hour each episode, about two kids, the adventures of two kids who were evacuated from their home in London down to Cornwall in World War II. And if you just type into your podcast app, Kisses on a Postcard, you'll find it. And... Yeah, I would love if you can put a link in the description or something, but I would love people to listen to that because it is very important to me and I also think it's really good. Okay, absolutely. It will make you laugh, it'll make you cry and all the rest of all it. All right, kisses on a postcard. Check it out, guys. We'll put the link in the description, of course. 
And for the people watching on YouTube, make sure you subscribe to the channel. If you're listening on audio, give it a five-star review. Tell a friend. We've got some more amazing guests coming up. And thanks to Dominic for doing the show. Thank you, Nick. Cheers, mate.